This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. In my 24 years in the military, you know when I was the most stressed? It was not in survival training. It was not at Quantico. It was not in combat flying high-performance jets. It was trying to get daycare for my second child. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath has dedicated her life to public service from the battlefield to running for public office. I spoke with retired Lieutenant Colonel McGrath about her new book, Honor Bound, the lessons she has learned as a military officer turned politician, and her work on leadership development for women with a military or service background. Amy, thanks for joining me on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Well, we have spent the past couple of months on this podcast talking to retired and active duty women in the military about a variety of issues from thriving and belonging to leadership to what's changed in the past 20 years to what still needs to change, especially as it pertains to women in service. So I want to start our conversation by talking to you about your service. What made you join the military? Well, obviously I wanted to serve the country, but I was somebody who I had this crazy dream to fly fighter jets at a very young age, 11 or 12 years old. And I think it became more intense when I found out at that age that I couldn't do it because I was a girl. This was the the late 80s, early 90s. And of course, the combat exclusion law was still in effect. That motivated me even more. I basically said, I'm going to do this thing because I know I can do it. And um, so for me, joining the military uh, was a combination of being sort of patriotic and service to country, but also the adventure and just this challenge, you know, just this idea of I'm going to do this thing that they're telling me I can't do. Mm -hmm. And how did this shape your leadership skills? Obviously, I learned so much after joining the military, left home here in Kentucky and went to the U.S. Naval Academy for four years and then commissioned as a Marine Corps officer. You know, learning about leadership, learning about putting others before yourself, which is certainly the the way in the Marine Corps, and learning that, you know, for me, the best leaders were the ones who were leaders by example, maybe not the loudest but the ones who were the most proficient, excellent at their job, and upstanding, honorable uh, people you could count on. And it's it's that simple. And, And I felt like that was something that I always tried to be. Those were the leaders that that I wanted to sort of, you know, take the hill with. And that's the kind of leader I wanted to be. Now, in a recent interview with WBUR, you talked about how, as a child, you wrote to Congress when you found out that under the the former federal combat exclusion policy, women were excluded from combat positions. And now, if the audience can fast forward with me, you served multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan in the Marine Corps, and you were the first woman Marine to fly a combat mission in an F-A-18. 
So change came, but it came slowly. First question, do you think your letter from way back when had an impact? But also, were you disappointed that change took so long or were you just happy that change finally happened when it did? I was happy that change finally happened. And I never forgot that there were women before me who had the same dreams as I did and did not have the opportunities to do what I did. I never forgot that. I got to the Naval Academy in 1993, right as the doors were opening. And that's just something that, that I felt extremely lucky to have been placed in that position at that time. I do think that, that obviously change happens slowly, but I was somebody that, you know, now that the doors were open, I was going to, to go through them and I was going to be excellent at it and make sure that the doors never closed for anyone behind me. Mm-hmm. It, well, a theme that we've heard throughout our Women in the Military series is the issue of retention. I would love your thoughts on what needs to change in order to keep women from leaving the service. Well, I think it's, it's a function of the services were sort of, you know, built our, our personnel structures in the 1950s and 60s, and a lot hasn't changed in terms of, you know, the wickets to promotion. And, and we have to think about the type of, of force we want in the future. Women tend to be married to other service members, and so you, you quite often, women are the ones dealing with dual military families. And, you know, the military isn't, hasn't normally been designed for dual military families. It was designed to have, you know, a spouse kind of follow you along on your track. And we have to, to reexamine some of these policies because we're losing really good people. I, I always tell folks that, you know, in my 24 years in the military, you know when I was the most stressed? It, w- it was not in survival training. It was not at Quantico. It was not in combat flying high-performance jets. It was trying to get daycare for my second child, you know? And because we, we had a PCS move, I had my son, and we didn't have, they didn't have any slots lined up in the place where Uncle Sam was sending me and my family to go. The daycare didn't have any openings. And this is the problem. You know, we have to, to start looking at that. And it, it really wasn't until that point in my career where I had ever thought about leaving, you know. And it was at that point when I was like, what's going on here? Just those little, you know, you, you think of them as little things, but they're not little. And I think having more women rise, more women who have had families rise in the ranks, my hope is that those things will change and we'll start to look at these things and people will will stay a little bit longer. Every single woman that we've interviewed as part of this Women in Military series has said almost the identical thing that you said, that the thing that stressed them out the most was finding childcare. And I think that's remarkable that every single woman we've talked to who has children and a family, that is what they've said, stress them out more than anything that they have done in their service. It's incredible. Because you're so vulnerable at that time too, you know, as a, as a, as a mother and you, you want to take care of your family, you're trying to serve your country, you're trying to get back in shape and you're at the mercy of uncle Sam, right? They're, they're moving you They're they're giving you orders and 
you know, it's again, it's these things that we think are 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 not important, but I think they need to be elevated up to a very high importance in order to retain the types of talent that uh, our military really needs. You've talked about that the American public has become disconnected with the conflicts that its service members have been engaged in and disconnected from people who serve in the military in general because it's such a small percentage of the population that that serves. What changes would you recommend to help people in the broader public connect and reconnect with those who serve? Because that that's something that's really important. Well, it's a, it's a tough thing to do because it is an all-volunteer military, and, and I understand that. I think with the conflicts we've been in in the past 20 years of war, and we're, we're all around the world, and we've had military operations not only in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also in many other countries around the world. I think a fundamental problem is that our Congress, the seat of power that represents the people, hasn't done their job. They haven't authorized the use of military force. They haven't debated where our military should be around the world. And therefore, the American people don't know a lot of what we're doing because there's no debate about it. They basically punted it to the president. And so we have, you know, many people call them the forever wars uh, that, you know, you could argue are coming to an end or you could argue are still going on. But I think that it's a real problem because I think that we need to take that sort of Article One. Section 8 responsibility in the Constitution back to Congress, and that that would help because it would provide some debate for the American people, and at least they would know what their military is doing. And, and I think that's probably one of the, the bigger steps we need to take in this country. Well, the public was very engaged and connected back in August when we withdrew from Afghanistan after 20 years on the ground. You alluded to that conflict. So let's talk a little bit about it. When do you think that the realization hit that that particular conflict was not going to have the outcome that perhaps leaders had hoped for? Well, my personal realization happened during my second tour there in that region, which was 2010. And it really was this realization of, boy, we're going to have to be here decades <laughs> if we're going to, to, to have stability here, or we're going to have to just leave. And somebody's going to have to make an assessment of what the pros and cons are, because this is not going to end anytime soon. I mean, that was what I realized back in, in 2010. And I think pulling out of that, I can't fault President Biden for doing it. I mean, I, I feel like it is, I always tell people Afghanistan is, is not black and white. There's no easy answers to that region or to that conflict. And I think one of the things that we can look at going forward again is we have to continue to engage with the American people about what we're doing and why. And that means we have to have consistent reauthorizations of the use of military force in these conflicts, you know, whether it's biannually, gosh, we do that from a budget basis, right? We do it every year. So why do we not look at this and have a debate about it and talk about what our strategy is every year? Because if we don't, we end up, you know, spending 20 years and not getting anywhere. And I also think that, you know, if you if you were to ask me, you know, how do we avoid a future Afghanistan? I actually think what we should think about even more is how do we avoid a future Iraq? Because our country, you know, 
engaged, invaded another country in a way that we hadn't done historically in the past. And we still really haven't taken accountability for how that all happened. I think that's even a bigger issue than than the war in Afghanistan, which I think had good intentions, but uh, just a, it's just a messy, messy place to be. Uh-huh. And if I could follow up, you alluded to this. How do you think leaders should proceed post-Afghanistan in analyzing what went wrong there? I know that there will be books written about this like there were books written about the Vietnam War and its aftermath. Do we need to spend some time navel-gazing to figure out what went wrong, or should we just take the lessons that that are obvious and just keep moving forward? Well, I think we do need to figure out and take a look at, at what went wrong. And I think we've many people have been doing that sort of along the way, too. And as I talked about earlier, I think even a bigger thing that we haven't done as a country is to you know, and I know Iraq is kind of behind us now, supposedly, but that was a big deal. We lost a lot of Americans there, arguably for, you know, no strategic victory at all. And, and you could argue actually hurt us in the region. And we still haven't figured out how that happened. I think we need to do a deep dive on that. You know, we did a 9-11 style report on on why we were attacked. And I think that went fairly well. We need to do something similar for both of these conflicts that we've been in the last 20 years where, you know, we didn't come out achieving the goals and the objectives that we set out to to achieve. I think that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Let me shift the conversation here because there's so much I want to talk to you about. It's absolutely fascinating. Your career and your perspective on all of these issues. Our Transnational Threats Project here at CSIS did a report on the percentage of all domestic terrorist incidents linked to active duty and reserve personnel, saying their report said that it rose in 2020 to 6.4%, up from 1.5% in 2019 and none in 2018. What does the military need to do to tackle this issue? It's a small number involved, but how does the military? handle this risk or prevent the numbers from from growing? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is we have to not look the other way. We have to be vigilant. I know that there are, are leaders in the military that, you know, the, sometimes the first instinct is to say, well, there's not a problem here. You know, my, my people are good and sort of protect our own. But the fact of the matter is we seem to have some problems and we don't know how f- deep they go. I think that some of these problems got worse under the last administration because of the commander-in-chief and his actions. And I think that leaders need to make sure that our military and, and soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, understand that violent right-wing groups do not stand for American values, you know? That they do not stand for the values of service to country, to duty, to defending the Constitution, that anyone that promotes hate and violence and devaluing the rights of others, that's not who we are as as members who serve our country. That's not who we are as veterans. And so it's not only just active duty military, but it's those of us who are veterans who actually should be toughest on each other because we know, we know right from wrong. And so I think one, don't ignore it, talk about it. Leaders all up and down the ranks, don't ignore it because they're they're fearful of being too political. This isn't about politics, this is about our core values. 
And the, and the last thing, just as important, I think, the military is that we have to educate our service members on disinformation. We have to educate them. So when we were attacked, for example, in, in the cyber realm, you know, when I was in, in the military, we, we do cyber awareness training. And it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't fix everything. We still have incidents. We still get attacked every day, right? But the average member knows, you know, the basics about cyber awareness. We need to do the same thing with regards to disinformation because our enemies are using this disinformation to attack us, to divide us, to spread lies and propaganda, and they're doing it for a purpose. And so we have to educate ourselves to make sure that, you know, we're prepared for this. I think that's really important. Let's not run away from this. Well, you wrote a Newsweek opinion piece and you list your steps to reimagine America. This was post the uh, January 6th attack on the Capitol and an NPR story found that as many as one in five defendants charged in, in that attack on the Capitol had served in the military. Can you talk about your steps to reimagine America and what does all of this mean for the country? Well, I took a step back after January 6th, as probably many people did, uh, many of your listeners. I mean, that day... Look, our, our capital hadn't been attacked since 1814, and it was just stunning. I think that anybody that wants to say, oh, we, we've got to move on from this is totally wrong. We do have to reimagine America, and we have to recognize first the, the shame and despair of that day and the magnitude of what happened. And then beyond that, we all have a role. This isn't just a role for um, politicians. This isn't just a role for the media. We have to um, help our country right now. That starts with some, some people are going to be uh, tasked with accountability, right? The investigations that are going on, perhaps criminal investigations, let's find out what happened. Accountability in the ballot box. You know, who was responsible for voting against our election? Well, let's, let's make, hold them accountable in the ballot box. And we need to do that. I think we need to elect leaders, who are, are new leaders who uh, will try to reform our system. We have some real problems. Campaign finance reform, voting rights reform, term limits, ending gerrymandering. These are all things that divide us, that make our government just tearing it down right now. Okay, so we have to do that. And then some people are going to be tasked with uh, making sure that the American public continues to get the truth. And I've called on business uh, leaders and tech leaders to do what they must do to combat disinformation. This isn't just a, a government has to fix this problem. No, 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 no. Leaders in business and leaders in tech have to, have to face this. This is our democracy. It's the best democracy on earth, but we have to protect it. And it, you cannot put the almighty dollar in front of our democracy. And I think they have, to, they have a role to play there. And then as basic citizens, you know, not just from, from me being a mother of three small kids and teaching my children about what's right and wrong on the, on the Internet, but just your basic citizen's knowledge of, of disinformation and what you share online. I think that's really important. We all have a role, and I believe that our country is a country that, you know, can be unified that can, be, can stand behind American values. But we have to work at it. We cannot just throw up our arms and say, ah, this is not my problem. No, we have a role to play. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. 
Well, you mentioned elections and uh, and leaders running for office. You ran for office twice. In 2018, you ran for the House of Representatives for the 6th Congressional District in Kentucky, and then you ran again in 2020 for the U.S. Senate from Kentucky, challenging Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And in your new book, Honor Bound, you write about the decision to run for Senate. Talk about the, the values of those in the military and the characteristics for veterans that make them good candidates for getting elected once they're, you know, once their time in services is finished? Yeah, well, I mean, military veterans and those who have served the country really in any capacity, I mean, we know what it's like to take the lead. And again, it goes back to our, our conversation earlier about leadership, basic leadership by example. You know, I ran for office because I, I wanted to be the leader that I wanted to vote for. And, and lots of people may want to run for office, but it doesn't work in their life at that time. You know, for me, I had an opening where I was retired, uh, or I just retired from the military, I could do anything, and I felt like this was something I had to do. I had to stand up and do what I thought my country needed me to do at the time. But I think for military veterans, or really for anybody who has served the country, and I'm not just talking in the military, but CIA, FBI, AmeriCorps, you know, we, we have these values of, of service. We've put our country, we've put something higher than us above ourselves. And I think that's a value we need to get back into politics and back into public service. It's that country over party mentality. And I think many military veterans have that. And I believe that that's why they make good candidates. I also think that it's nice to, to have people run for office who are not career politicians, who have not grown up within the political world. And I'm glad that we have people that do that. But I also think it's really refreshing to have people come from other areas of, of service who have been out there in the federal government or done things that aren't a, in a, of a political nature. And the third thing is the operational experience. I mean, you know, the, going and doing stuff in the military or really any service in, in government, you know that there's not always black and white answers for everything. And it's hard, it's harder to disparage your fellow American in the political rhetoric that we have today when you served alongside them. <laughs> you know, in combat and in overseas and you've worn the same uniform with the same flag on your shoulder. And I think that's, those are the types of people that we need as leaders to our country right now. There are an estimated 2.2 million women vets in the U.S., but only nine of them have ever served in Congress. So this leads to my next question. Will you run again? Well, right now I'm in a supporting role, and um, that's what my organization, Honor Bound, 501c4, uh, which is the same title of my book, is all about. It's trying to get people who have served the country, not just in the military, but in, in any way, shape, or form, to be able to jump into politics because that's the kind of leader that we need right now. So it's an organization that it helps them network, helps them with, with training, gets them the mentoring that they need, particularly women. Why women? Because women only make up 25% of the halls of Congress at the, at the federal level, and that's not good enough. But it's helping these women who have served the country get connections and then get started in a political campaign. And that's, that's what I'm doing right now. I did my part, that sort of leadership by example. It doesn't work out for everybody, okay? You know, in 2018, there were eight 
eight of us women who had um, served the country who ran for Congress in that year. Five got in and three of us didn't. And, and you know, that's, that's not bad. And those five women who got in, uh, Mikey Sherrill, Chrissy Houlihan, Alyssa Slotkin, uh, Elaine Luria, uh, Abigail Spanberger, they, they're doing amazing things. They may not be the, the, the loudest members of Congress, but I'm telling you, they are, they are probably the most competent and, um, and they take it seriously. They take their oath seriously and they're doing amazing things. And so my goal now, Beverly, is to help get more of them in office, keep them in office and get more of them in office. It may not be in the cards for me, but it's, it needs to be for, for other people, for our country. And is it a bipartisan effort? We're a bipartisan, nonpartisan think tank, so I, I need to ask. So the Honor Bound C4 is a bipartisan effort. So when I go talk to um, organizations to try to inspire uh, women veterans or women who have served to think about politics, you know, maybe they're still in the service right now, but what are they going to do five years from now when they retire? Or maybe what are they going to do, you know, seven years from now when they get out to, to kind of plant the seed for politics. And that piece is nonpartisan. Okay. So the, the C4 is, yes. We're coming up on a, another important election season. 2022 is only a, let's see, we're at the end of October as we record this. So a couple months left in the year and then January 2022 will be here and the election season will get into full swing. What are you hoping that the American people will remember as they go to cast their votes and how can U.S. citizens get more involved in local and national government? Do you have a message for the folks who may be questioning American democracy right now during this period we find ourselves in? Yeah, well, my message is we cannot give up. And you cannot throw up your hands right now and say, I've, I've had enough, the politics is, is too toxic, I can't deal with it. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm begging you not to do that. We need patriotic Americans to not only vote, but to get out there and, and make sure that they are supporting candidates who have the values of honor and courage and commitment that our country needs right now. And, and so one of the things the 18 election and the 20 election taught us is that you don't have to just stay supporting candidates in your home district or even in your home state. You know, maybe your state is good. Maybe you have good leaders in your district, okay? Maybe you need to focus elsewhere. And if you think that you don't have the time to look up all these candidates around the country. You know what? There are organizations that will help you. My organization will help you. Honorboundamericans.com is looking at supporting candidates around the country that have these values. So you could contribute to that, my organization, and I will then help those candidates. Or you can do your own work on it. But find those candidates out there because it is our country. It's not just about your district. It's not just about your state. It is about the leadership of our country. And it is so important to make sure that we don't give up. And that means doing the hard thing of directly supporting the candidates that have American values. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for an absolutely fascinating conversation. Well, it's great to be with you, and thank you for having me on. Of course, and thanks to all of you for joining us. 
Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hey, Smart Women Smart Power listeners. My name is Caitlin Johnson, and I host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, where we elevate women's voices in the intersection of emerging technologies and national security policy. We talk about things like artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, and space. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts or at csis.org slash tech unmanned.